we'll look at the really the whole chapter from verse 12 on. But let me read for us verses 12 through 16. All who sin apart from the law, and notice how many times, by the way, he uses the word law in this paragraph. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. Perish is a word that means something like come undone. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it's those who obey the law who will be declared righteous or justified. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their conscience is also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Um, that, that's an interesting thought to follow. We'll do that at Go Deep this week. Gospel is good news, and is judgment part of the good news? There's a guy from Barstow, California, named Larry Parker. He's an engineer, smart guy. He and his wife belonged to a Word of Faith fellowship back in the 1970s. Their son, Wesley, was a type 1 diabetic. I think Wesley was eight years old at the time. And they, with the encouragement of their preacher, withheld his insulin. Wesley went into a coma, but the church leaders urged them not to lose faith, not to make any negative confession, they said. Uh, or Wesley's healing would be compromised. So the Parkers continued claiming healing and trying not to doubt, not saying anything that would suggest they doubted. And they did that until Wesley died. Even after he died, they continued to trust their preacher and the church leadership. Rather than have a funeral service, they held a resurrection service. I think they expected Wesley to climb out of the coffin. For a year after his death, they held on to the revelation knowledge they had received through their church leaders. But Wesley didn't come back to life. And the Parkers were convicted of involuntary manslaughter and child abuse. They trusted the wrong people. They trusted in the wrong things. Karen and I had a classmate who, a few years after college, made exactly the same mistake that the Parkers made, lost her child, was charged with the same charges. She was such a kind, sweet girl, but she trusted the wrong things. In the ocean off the Mentawai Islands in Indonesia are anchored warning buoys. These warning buoys measure wave height and then they transmit that information to the islands in case of a tsunami. The buoys um, should have warned residents during that 2010 tsunami. Do you remember the terrible tsunami, Indian Ocean? Remember our church, if I recall correctly, gave our morning offering to help people, $10,000 or something we gave away to help people who were involved in that Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people died or were displaced. But, but on those Mentawi Islands, they were closest to the center, the epicenter of the quake. They were trusting that warning system to give them time to reach higher ground, 
Their trust was misplaced. Some of those buoys had become detached and they drifted away. Others just failed because their sensors weren't working any longer. According to an investigation after the fact, at any one time, as many as a third of those buoys weren't working. The, the people there trusted them to protect them, but it was a false sense of security. They trusted the wrong things. In Romans 2, Paul warns people not to trust the wrong things. It's one of the strong emphases in this passage. Paul knows how misplaced trust not only harms a person, but the people around him. Misplaced trust leads to hypocrisy, and that brings dishonor to God, as it did in the case of the Parkers, and in the case of our old classmate. Paul felt it necessary to warn the Roman church against misplaced trust, specifically trust in religion. Religion is like a bottle, or for the sake of being biblical, let's say a wineskin. Faith in Jesus is like the wine it holds. Religion's like a, a storage container on your pontoon boat. Faith in Jesus is like the life jacket that's stored inside. Religion's like a chandelier. It can be really beautiful. But faith in Jesus is like the light shining out from it. Religion serves a purpose, but it ceases to be helpful whenever it becomes a substitute for faith in Jesus. Imagine you and I are fishing on your pontoon boat, and you just caught a fish, and you want to wrench your hands off in the lake, but as you bend over, you lose your balance, and you fall in the water. So as quick as lightning, I rush to the storage container, one of those Tupperware things you keep on your pontoon, and I throw it open, and I turn it upside down, and empty the life jackets on the floor, and then proceed to throw the empty container to you. That's the kind of thing that happens when people give religion to their children and offer it to their friends instead of giving them Jesus. They give them the container, not the life-saving reality that it holds. Paul knew that religion could be a good thing, but when substituted for faith in Jesus, it becomes the wrong thing, even a bad thing. Use religion, but trust Jesus. Too many people get that backwards. They trust religion, and they use, or they try to use, Jesus. Paul was writing to a church that was far away. So he's in Corinth. He's, he's hundreds of miles, maybe a thousand miles from this church. And most of its members whom he'd never met. But he did know some of them. In fact, at least two of them were some of his best friends. And he learned about the church's situation. It was comprised mostly of Jewish believers until the emperor Claudius banished all ethnic Jews from Rome. You saw the name Claudius up there? <laughs> That's from that period. Actually, things got much worse for Christians a few years after Claudius, under Nero. But under Claudius, all the Jews were banned from Rome, leaving this nascent church bereft of its most experienced leaders and teachers. The expulsion lasted for at least a couple of years. Probably a little longer than that. Most historians think that the Jews were banned from Rome for at least four years. When the Jews were permitted back to Rome, some of them came, as did Paul's great friends Priscilla and Aquila, and they found that the church had changed while they were gone. In their absence, it had lost some of its distinctive Jewish synagogue-like feel. To the returning Jewish believers, it felt more like the meeting of a guild. They weren't sure they liked this. The new situation... With the Jews coming back, the Jewish believers in Jesus coming back, brought some awkward questions to the forefront. 
Should the Jewish believers, the ones with the advanced biblical knowledge, be the preferred leaders? Should Jewish sentiments regarding meat sacrificed to idols guide the church's practice? Paul's going to talk about those things in this letter. And especially, what is the place of Torah, the Jewish law, in the Gentile Jewish church? Those questions remain in the background through most of this letter, occasionally coming to the front. It seems that at least some of the Jewish believers felt superior to their Gentile comrades. They, after all, were the chosen people. They were the ones who had the law. They bore the mark of the covenant in their bodies. It's into that situation that Paul writes Romans chapter 2. And he warns his fellow Jews. He's a Jew himself, right? He warns them to beware of misplaced trust. If they trust their ethnicity or their religion to win acceptance with God, they are going to be in for a rude awakening. They'll be like the Mentawai Islanders who trusted the early warning buoys to save them. Use religion, trust Jesus. To understand what Paul's writing here and why he's writing it, we need to understand the three pillars of Judaism. Do you know what the three pillars of Judaism are? Monotheism, election, and Torah. We find all three in verse 17. Look at that. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, the person who calls himself a Jew, he believes he's a member of the chosen people. That's election. He relies on the law. The Greek is really rests on the law. He rests on the law. That's Torah. And he brags about his relationship with, literally, he boasts in God. That's monotheism. Jewish literature of the time stressed that Israel's election as God's special people was inviolable. It was irrevocable. Nothing could ever change it. It also stressed Jewish superiority over the rest of the world because of one thing. The Jews alone had Torah. They had the law of Moses. When it came to God, at least some of the Jewish believers felt that they had a corner on that market. So you can imagine how those feelings came across to Gentile believers in the Roman church. So Paul warns his fellow Jews who believe in Jesus against a feeling of superiority and against a misplaced trust in religion. Now, he doesn't deny the privileged position that Jewish believers enjoy. In fact, he's going to make quite a point of that later in the letter. But he does warn Jewish believers in Jesus not to trust their position. Don't trust in Jewish election. This is verse 28. A man is not a Jew if he's only one outwardly. Don't trust possession of the Torah. This is verse 13. For it's not those who hear the Torah, who hear the law, who are righteous in God's sight, but it's those who obey the law who will be declared righteous, who will be justified. Don't trust in circumcision. This is verse 25. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you've become as though you had not been circumcised. Circumcision was a sign of the covenant, but Paul argues that failure to keep the law of the covenant removes a person from membership in the covenant. In God's sight, that person is no different than a Gentile. So get what Paul's saying. Don't trust the wrong things. As we read this, we need to be careful not to get ahead of ourselves or Paul by concluding that the one thing that deserves our trust, the one thing that won't let us down, is obedience to the law. And doesn't Paul say in verse 13, it's those who obey the law who will be declared righteous, who will be justified? He does, 
But it'd be a mistake to conclude Paul wants people to trust religious rule-keeping to save them. The problem is we come to this text asking the wrong question. The one we think that Paul's answering, but he's not. We think he's answering the question, will people be saved by what they believe or by what they do? That old faith or works thing. But we've imported that question into the text from centuries of debate. Because theologians have been asking that for the last 500 years. We think that's the question that Paul's answering. But if you try to make this text answer that question, the answer you're going to get is bound to be wrong. The real question behind this text is, is religious membership, even in the true religion, enough to win God's acceptance? And Paul's answer to that question is definitely not. And it never has been. Possession of God's law does not give you a leg up on anyone. And the sad fact is the people who possess the Mosaic law who are supposed to be guides, this is verse 25, or verse 19, for the blind, a light for those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants. Those people who had that failed in their calling. They should have been all these things. Some scholars think Paul's using sarcasm here. I don't think so. They should have been all of these things, but they failed because they were caught in the same web that caught their non-Jewish neighbors. They're caught in sin. You know where these religious people, and don't forget they belong to the true religion, okay? Do you know where these religious people went wrong? They went wrong because they were too easily satisfied. They were impressed with the wineskin and forgot the wine. They were like kids at Christmas who play with a gift wrap but forget about the toys. They were satisfied with externals. Look at verses 28 and 29. A man's not a Jew if he's only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he's one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. God intended the externals to serve the internal. When the externals become a substitute for the internal, when ritual replaces relationships, all kinds of dreadful things happen in religion. Religion can become a very dangerous thing. A brutal legalism springs up, and the act becomes all important, the meaning forgotten. And when that happens, hypocrisy thrives. A person who tries to be good on the inside is no hypocrite, even if he fails. But a person who tries to look good on the outside is a hypocrite, even if he succeeds. When the external becomes a substitute for the internal, legalism springs up, hypocrisy thrives, and you know what happens in the church? Brothers and sisters despise each other. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, he said so, but to save it. And yet you'd never know that from watching some of his followers. Judgment's their middle name. Condemnation's their favorite sport, and they're good at it. Condemning others becomes, for them, the mark of orthodoxy. It's a way to sort of move up in the ecclesiastical standings. When that's the situation, gossip becomes the background music of the church. It plays whenever members of the community come together. And then that's the devil's playground. Even if it happens in a church, even if it happens in an Orthodox church, even if it happens in our church, 
when the external becomes a substitute for the internal, and legalism springs up, and hypocrisy thrives, and a judgmental spirit descends, and gossip rises, people inside the church will see that people outside the church do one of two things. They'll either pay no attention to the church, and that's to be preferred, or they'll deride and scorn the church and reject the gospel of God, thinking that they know it when they really don't even have a clue. That, in large part, is what's happening in our culture. Paul says in verse 24, as it's written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now he's quoting Isaiah, the prophet. But when Isaiah wrote this, what he was saying was God's name was being blasphemed because Israel was suffering. His people was suffering. They're suffering because of their sins in exile. But he's saying that your name's blasphemed, God, because of the suffering of your people. But Paul's saying God's name's being blasphemed because of the sin of his people. Okay, what does this have to do with us? Paul was writing nearly 2,000 years ago and was specifically addressing Jewish believers in Jesus. That's true. But the principle here applies to us, just as it did to them. Don't trust religion. Trust Jesus. Don't be satisfied with looking good. Be good. Don't settle for externals. If you do, you will get caught up in that cycle of legalism and hypocrisy and condemnation and gossip. And God's name will be blasphemed because of you. Think about this. How would your neighbor, your friend, your child, your coworker answer this question? If the God blank, and you can put your name there, if the God blank believes in is real, what must he be like? For example, if the God shame believes in is real, what must that God be like? If I'm caught up in religious externals and all that goes with them, the best thought those people have of God is that he doesn't exist if they're basing it on me. The worst will be a blasphemy that threatens to trap them in that same web of legalism and hypocrisy and condemnation and despair. Brennan Manning once said, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door, and deny him with their lifestyle. That's what the unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. I mentioned earlier the three pillars of Judaism, monotheism, election, and Torah. They had the right beliefs about God. They understood themselves to be his chosen people, and they held his law in the highest regard. All that was right. What was wrong was the assumption that was enough. That that's what God is looking for. You know, we're 2,000 years later in a Gentile culture, but we have similar things. We have Bible baptism and church membership. I've known people who take God's acceptance for granted because they were raised in a Christian home or they were baptized or they joined a church. I've known people who repeated a prayer or signed what we used to call a decision card years ago and haven't done anything since. If you ask them, they'd say they were Christians, but their Christianity has been put on the shelf. It's up there until they think they need it. That is when they die. They expect to go to heaven, to a heaven that they don't care about to spend eternity with a God they've never even found interesting. But hey, it's better than hell, right? 
They rarely make it to church on Sundays, but they expect to make it to heaven someday. They're on the membership role with the right people who hold the right doctrines, as far as they know, drawn from the right version of the Bible, and they think that's what God's looking for. Look, Bible, baptism, church membership are right and good and can be extremely helpful, but don't kid yourself. They are not a substitute for faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, obviously, we must understand what that means. What is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? When Paul spoke and wrote about it, he had something specific, something classifiable in mind. For him, confessing faith in the Lord Jesus Christ was more than Bible baptism and church membership. It was more than espousing a theory about the nature and outcome of Jesus' atoning death. His death is of vital importance. We're going to see that in chapter 3. But our opinion about his death, even our strongly and sincerely held opinion, is not faith in the sense that Paul's talking about. And since we're justified by faith, it's important to understand what that is. And it's important to understand what we mean by being justified. If we think faith is something other than it is, we'll never understand what it means to be justified. If we've misunderstood what it means to be justified, we're never going to get faith. We won't be able to understand what that is. Now, look, we don't have time to do that. I see it's 9.30 already. So take those as teasers and, and come back and get more. Because, see, the better you understand what God has done, the more fully you can experience what he's doing right now in your life and in our church and in his world. We'll go deeper when we get to chapter 3. And by the way, you can pick up one of the Go Deep sheets out there by the CDs, and they're going to help prepare us for that. But for now, let's go back to where we started. If your trust is not in the right place, if you're trusting something like the Mentawi Islanders that isn't working, have you figured that out yet? You know, Americans today are having a hard time with trust. They trust government less than ever. Every poll shows that. We trust government less than we ever have. We don't trust each other. Only 17% of us think other Americans have the right values. Even trust in God's fallen on hard times. Belief in God and his existence is down 9% over the past four decades, but among people in their 20s, it's down 17%. You know the thing that Americans still trust? Themselves. That's what the data indicate. So the Atlantic wrote an article titled, Americans are losing confidence in the nation, but still believe in themselves. Talk about misplaced trust. You know, our skills and our, our minds may remain trustworthy for 60 or 70 years. You know, they're not trustworthy until you get past 18. You know that, right? <laughs> and once you're past 80 or 90, it starts to become questionable again. Sorry <laughs> for all of you who qualify there. But the reality is our motives and our emotions, they never have been trustworthy. And it's not because we're so bad, but because we're so weak. What powers do we have that extend beyond the grave? What can creatures like us do after we die? Trusting in ourselves is like trusting those warning buoys. Trusting religions like trusting the container that holds the life jackets. 
then who do we trust? We trust in Jesus Christ. And when we do, we trust in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so our faith and hope are in God. That's well-placed trust. All right, let's pray. Lord, I pray that you will show us if we're trusting in something that's not you. But we've mistaken it for you. We've mistaken the container for what it holds. The wineskin for the wine. Lord, if we've done that and we don't know it, would you show us? So that our faith and our hope might be in you. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.